Good evening. It's good to see everyone tonight. I want to begin, like Connor used to do, uh, with a story back when I was in school. Now, not as far back as he was, but I'm going to go back to college. And while I was in college, I remember visiting a home uh, uh, of a sweet, dear Christian lady. And one, that home made an impression on me because when I walked in the door, you had to walk down a little hallway in order to get to the, uh, to the living room. And when I walked in, there were chickens in the house, and so that begins to tell you something. Not the pet chickens, I'm talking about the real chickens that run around in the yard as well. But as you walked down the hallway, there was dirt that had been, looked like, scooped up and just piled up against the, uh, the walls. And, and, you know, that, that really made an impression on me. Well, that sweet, dear Christian lady, she loved to bake cakes, and... You know, occasionally she'd want to drop one off at the house and and let us have a a nice chocolate cake or something like that. Well, thankfully, while I was in school at Faulkner, I had a good teacher in Brother Wendell Winkler, and he would give some very practical advice to the preachers who were there, you know, those who were going through. And he had gone through, and I remember this, he had gone through something very similar, and, and, and he said, you know, you really don't want to make a person mad or you don't want to hurt their feelings by saying, well, you know, I just couldn't eat that cake. And so when asked about the cake that they had brought by, he said, well, sister so-and-so, cakes like that just don't last long around our house. (laughs) You know, sometimes if you hear that, it may be for one reason or another. It may be because it's good, or it may be because you've got chickens running around in your house. And, and if you've got the chickens running around in your house, it's probably the latter. And so as you think about that, you know, uh, even the most delicious-looking chocolate cake or the most delicious-looking apple pie or, or whatever it is that you really do like, even that most delicious-looking dessert that, that, that you have coming from a dirty hand, or, or a hand with sores on it, or a hand with the fingernails, you know, everything just caked up and under the fingernails. We'll just say it's a little less appetizing when you see all of those kinds of things that happen. Well, what makes us think that folks want to receive the gospel if our lives resemble the filthy house? Or in the same token, you know, we had the dirty hands or the, the sores on our hands. And what would make us think that people would want to listen to us? You see, Christianity won't mean anything to anybody else until it means everything to us. And so what we need to think about are some of the characteristics that it takes to make Bible evangelists. And I want you to hang with me tonight. I want you to listen well. And I want you to, to, to keep up, if you will, throughout the Word of God. And, and we're going to look at four things tonight, four characteristics in particular that, that we have to have in order to be an effective Bible evangelist. We, we want to lead others to Christ. And of course, that's what we're looking at on Sunday nights during this year. And, and we're eventually going to get into a particular study that we'll be looking at and looking more at Bible kinds of things. But I want us to think about this before we actually get to that point, because unless we get this right, then the rest of it will not matter. We will not be able to convince people of the truth of God's Word. 
And so tonight, what is it that we, what characteristics is it that we need to have if we're going to be Bible evangelists? Number one, obviously, we must have a clean life. We must have a clean life. A couple of passages that I want to call your attention to. Now that is not 2 Timothy chapter 23, that's 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 20 and 21. But in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 20 and 21, the Bible says, Now great ha- in a great house there are a lot of vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honorable use, some for dishonorable. Now just imagine a house and furnished, you know, with different kinds of things that are in it. And, 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 you know, gold and silver and wood and all of those kinds of things. Just, just imagine that. Verse 21, though, says, Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. If you notice there, there are all kinds of vessels there are all kinds of vessels who are here tonight. And, and, and we want to be a useful vessel to the Lord, don't we? We are, we are a part of His uh, kingdom, and so we want to be a useful vessel. But did you catch what the Apostle Paul said? For that vessel to be useful to the Master, or for any use to the Master, or for the good or the best use to the Master, then we must cleanse ourselves. You see, what's on the outside makes a difference, doesn't it? How people see us, what they see us doing, how they hear us talking, it makes a difference to those who are outside of Christ. They are watching you, and they are seeing you. And so if our life is not clean, then obviously, and we all understand this, we're not going to belabor this point all that greatly tonight, But if people are seeing that, seeing something that they shouldn't see in us, then obviously what they're going to say is, well, there's only a bunch of hypocrites there if they're all like you. But not only do we have to have the outside of ourselves clean, we also have to have the inside clean. Notice, if you will, in 1 John chapter 3, beginning in verse 19. 1 John chapter 3, verses 19 and 20, the Bible says... By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before Him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart. And He knows everything. You see, what's in the heart matters as well. And we must be clean on the inside just like we're clean on the outside. Because if we're not clean on the inside... If, if, if our conscience, if, if our mind, if our heart can condemn us because of the way that we live, then surely God is going to condemn us because He sees and He knows as well. But if, if our heart is not right, then other folks are going to notice it as well because things are going to slip out, if you will. It, it may be that our heart, or rather our life, appears to be that squeaky clean on the outside but again, by the words that we say or by the attitudes that we portray, people will begin to notice. And so, we must have a clean life. Now understand this, God does not demand a beautiful vessel for His work, but He does demand a clean one. And so if we want to be effective in evangelizing, helping people to see the truth of God's Word and bringing them to Christ, 
we have to start off with a clean life. But number two tonight, not only must we have a clean life, but I suggest to you we must have a confident life as well. A confident life. In other words, one must be thoroughly convinced and fully converted before he can begin teaching others the way of salvation. Now, let me read that again. I actually read that for you. One must be thoroughly convinced and fully converted before he or she, I'll just add that in, can begin teaching others the way of salvation. What do you mean by that? Well, in 1 John chapter 5, at verse 13, John writes and tells us, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you might know that you have eternal life. How many in this room tonight, and again, we're not asking you to raise your hand, but I do want you to answer it in your mind. How many in this room tonight believe that you have eternal life? That if you were to die tonight, that you would go to heaven? You know what? I've, been, I've heard people in years gone by who would say something like this. They would say, you know what? You really just can't know that you're going to heaven. Well, did they read 1 John chapter 5 at verse 13? Did they read what the inspired penman of God wrote when he said, I wrote these things so you can know that you have eternal life? Now, it's either the person making the statement or it's the divine writer, the inspired writer, rather, who is making a statement. And I don't know about you, but I'm going to take the inspired writer every single time. You see, if I can't believe that I'm going to heaven, if I don't know, if I, if I can't look at the Word of God and know that I'm going to heaven by an obedient life, then there's really no need in me teaching anybody else about going to heaven because if I can't convince myself that I'm going, then how in the world can I convince anybody else to follow me if I don't know where I'm going? I need to know. And the Bible teaches us that we can know. You know, an unconverted church member can expect very little success because nobody wants to follow somebody who doesn't know where he or she is going. Now, somebody said that there are at least two musts that every person must have in their life. And that is, number one, that we must have a knowledge that our own sins have been forgiven uh, by your obedience to the will of God. Okay? We've, we've got to have that. Do you believe that your sins have been forgiven? In the book of Romans, chapter 6, verses 17 and 18... Notice what the Apostle Paul says. He says, But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to, uh, to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free from sin, what happens? You have become the slaves of righteousness. Do you believe that when you were baptized into Christ, that the blood of Jesus Christ took the sins that you had committed to, in the time prior to that, and they were washed away, and you came up out of that water as white as snow, spiritually speaking, that your sins are gone. Do you believe that they were gone? You know, 
I'm convinced in talking to a lot of people that, that they haven't uh, been firmly convinced in their own mind. Uh, that they have any confidence whatsoever that their sins are gone. You know why I question that? Because they want to keep holding on to them. Not that they keep practicing them, but they want to keep holding on to them. They simply cannot believe that God would forgive them. It may have been something bad that they have done in the past, but if God forgives you, if your sins are washed away in His blood then you have been set free from that. They are no longer there. One of the things that, again, also causes me to think that people haven't fully understood and have that confidence is we as individuals want to keep bringing up what somebody else has done. And if we're convinced that God hasn't forgiven them in the way that He has forgiven us, then Maybe we question our own forgiveness. We need to be very careful. We need to understand the Word of God. God doesn't just forgive us wholesale and say, all right, now, I just forgot about everything. But if you noted there in the book of Romans, chapter 6, verses 17 and 18, He talks about being obedient to the faith. And that's what, that's what He's talking about. That's how we know. We have become obedient to Christ. And as a result of that, then our sins are free. We are freed from our sins. And so, number one, we must have a knowledge that our own sins have been forgiven. And number two, we must realize the blood of Christ continues to cleanse us from our sin if we confess them and ask for forgiveness. Again, in 1 John chapter 1, verses 7-9, through 9, if we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, His Son, cleanses us from all sin. That's different than what we did to begin with. He's not talking about the initial forgiveness, but He's talking about the continued forgiveness. And again, as, as sometimes you hear us say that the word that's used there is used in, in the sense of being a, a continual process or it could even be translated, it continues to cleanse us of our sins. And you continue on, if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to continue to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You know, as Christians, we shouldn't worry when we go to bed. Whether if I don't wake up tomorrow whether I will be in heaven or not. Now, if I'm walking in the light, as John writes it here, and I'm willing to make the confession when I make a mistake, when I sin against God, the Bible assures me that my sins will be forgiven. They will continue to be cleansed by the blood of Jesus Christ. Now, number one, if you're not confident in the fact that your sins have been forgiven, and number two, that they continued, uh, continue to be forgiven through the blood of Christ, how could you ever convince anyone to want to be what you are? A confused, worried soul who does not know whether his God forgives him or not. Now you think about that. We must be a confident, have a confident life 
if we want to be a soul winner. Number three, we must also have a committed life if we want to be a soul winner, be an evangelist. Let me just simply say it this way and then we'll go back and we'll talk about it. One can't be lukewarm and be successful for the Lord. Now, everybody knows where we're going. We're going to the book of Revelation, chapter number 3. And we'll look first at verses 14 through 16. All of us know the story there. Writing to the church at Laodicea, the Lord had these things to say. He said, uh, the words of the faithful amen, or uh, the, the, the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. He says, I know your works, and, and you are neither cold or hot. Would that you were either cold or hot, so because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. That's the way the English standard translates the passage. Literally, what we're looking at is making God sick at his stomach. I will vomit you out of my mouth. And so the one who is lukewarm, who, who's not really on fire, but he's not really cold either, the one who, who, who is, who, who's sort of faithful, and I use that accommodatively, one who's sort of faithful, but he's sort of unfaithful too, and I'm using that accommodatively as well. Now we need to understand that there's no such thing as a sort of. We just try to get in the middle, and that's what these people were trying to do. And because they were staying in the middle, it made God sick at his stomach. Now, here's where I want to go. Sometimes we look at that and we think about that, but I want you to look at verse 18. Now, verse 18 is quite revealing as well, because when you look at Roman, Revelation, rather, chapter 3, verse 18, he goes on and says, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire, so that you may be rich, and white garments, so that you may clothe yourselves. Now watch this next part. This is where it becomes interesting. And the shame of your nakedness may not be seen. And then he talks about in salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. I want to focus on that part, the shame of your nakedness and how it can be seen. Obviously, again, God would see the lukewarmness and it made him sick. But I want to suggest to you tonight that it's not just God who can detect the lukewarmness of an individual. You see, the lukewarmness of an individual can be seen even by the vilest of sinners. Right? How do they do that? Well, they observe us. When, for example, we, we are hit or miss in our attendance of the worship services and people see us and they know that, they begin to say, hmm, you know, he, he may not be as, as on fire for the Lord as he or she ought to be. And, and, and I'm not talking about the preacher, the elders come to see you about that. I'm talking about everybody else who are, who are watching you and be aware of the fact, as we've already mentioned in this lesson, folks are watching you from the youngest to the oldest in the congregation and outside, you are being observed. Not in a not in a bad way. They're not you know they're not stalking you, but they are observing you. And when they see you, 
and the lukewarmness that you might have in your life, God calls it being naked. You're as exposed as anything. You know one of the worst things that could happen to a person in, in ancient times is for him or her to be exposed. To, to in other words, be, be caught with no clothing on or for the clothing to be taken away from them. How many have ever had the dream, you know, they talk about this, of going to school and not having your pants on or something like that? Anybody ever had a dream like that and how, how hard it is to, you know, to, to go and to, uh, uh, you, you can't even find a place where you can get your pants or, you know, whatever, those kind of things? Well, it's not a dream. People see and they know. And if that's the life that you have, how would you ever convince another person to be naked alongside you? To be the same as you are? And so we have to have what we'll simply call tonight the committed life. We either need to be hot or we need to be cold. And God's preference is for us to be hot. Not lukewarm, not cold. God's preference for us is to be hot, on fire from Him, for Him. Now, not only that, in being a, having a committed life, let me just add to that one other thought. Whenever we're talking about being committed, who is it that we're being committed to? Are we committed to self or are we committed to God? Someone has said, and I agree, that selfishness is the greatest enemy of personal work. Selfishness. You see, when we're selfish... We may be committed, but we're committed to the wrong person. We're committed to the wrong one. If one's going to be useful in personal work, he, he has to put away his or her own interests. He has to put away his or her own personal comforts and personal ease and pride and even feelings. Because selfishness gives us commitment, but to the wrong Person. Now, how committed are we? Again, as I was studying for this lesson, I ran across this, this idea, and I think it's something worthy of your consideration. How committed would each one of us be if God required all of us, all Christians, those who were baptized into Christ, to immediately come up out of the watery grave of baptism and spend Five minutes in hell. How committed would we be? Just five minutes. Just five minutes being separated completely from God. You know, I don't ever want to experience one minute. But if we think about what our life should be, if we experience just five minutes in hell, would we be more committed than we are now? Would we be less selfish? When I read the story in the book of Luke about a man who was a rich man, and when I see the fact that he opened up his eyes, lifted up his eyes in the Hadean realm, and he found himself in torment, that this man, it didn't take him ten years to figure out, I'm in a bad way. I'm in a bad place. In, in the elapsed time that we see, you know, 
it's almost instantaneous that he sees Abraham and Lazarus who is there. And he begins begging for some relief. And not only does he beg for some relief for himself, what does he become? He becomes one who is concerned with others. Do you do remember who he becomes concerned about, don't you? He says, send him back. If he can't come help me, send Lazarus back and let him tell my brother so they don't come to this place. How committed would we be to the Lord if we but would spend but five minutes in hell? Now, having seen that, I wanted to reverse it. How committed would we be if God would allow us in that same scenario to spend five minutes in heaven. And you think about that one for a moment. Beyond anything you could ever imagine here. Would your life not be lived so that you could go spend more than five minutes there? So that you could go and spend eternity there? Wouldn't we be motivated from that perspective as well? So tonight, I said that to say this. Our committed life is not just that we fear hell, but our committed life is based on the fact that we long for heaven. And we long for that place enough to want to go ourselves, and we long for that place enough that we want to take other folks with us as well. And we're so fearful of the other place that I don't want to go there, but I'm fearful for that, of that other place for others as well. And I don't want them to go either. But you see, I have to have that committed life so that when they look at me, they don't see me naked, as Revelation chapter 3, verse 18 speaks of. And they don't see my lack of commitment in my life. I must be committed. But then number four, we must have a composed life. If we want to be effective in our uh, evangelistic work, we must have a composed life. Now what do we mean by a composed life? I, I see that there are two aspects to that. Number one, there's perseverance. I need to be, you know, a person who keeps on keeping on. Now where did I learn that? Look at Galatians chapter 6 at verse number 9. Galatians chapter 6 verse number 9 says, And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. I keep on doing good. I am doing my best to do good. And when it comes to evangelism, if you're wanting to be a, uh, an evangelist, you keep on doing good by sowing the Word. Now, a couple of weeks ago, we looked at evangelism being sowing, but I keep on sowing the Word, whether it comes up on good ground or it comes up on rocky ground or it comes up on the wayside, I keep on doing good. I don't focus just on the wayside. I don't focus just on the rocky ground. I, I focus on sowing the Word. And so my life is one of, uh, one of uh, perseverance, composure from, from that standpoint. To lose one's motivation to accomplish some valid goal is a, is a tragic thing. But that's exactly 
what Paul is writing about here in Galatians chapter 6 at verse number 9 because that's what the word means. That, I just read you the definition of the word. To lose one's motivation to accomplish some valid goal. And so I don't lose heart. I don't give up. I don't become discouraged. That's what I need in my life. But I said that there were two aspects of uh, composure that I wanted to talk about. Number one was perseverance, and number two is patience. Now, if you have your Bible, look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 at verse number 14. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 14, same Apostle Paul writes and says, And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak. Now watch this next one. Be patient with them all. Be patient with them all. You see, these are people who are unfaithful to God or perhaps even not even a member of the family of God. Be patient with them all. The word means to be patient in bearing the offenses and injuries of others, to be mild and slow in avenging, to be long-suffering, slow to anger, slow to punish. I've got to be patient with those who are doing wrong. Okay? Now, that's the same word that's used in 1 Corinthians chapter 13 at verse number 4, where the Bible simply says, love is patient. Love is patient. I am patient with those who are lost because I love them. I love their soul. And I want them to go to heaven. You know, we must not be impatient with those who are slow to respond to the teaching of the truth. In considering that, maybe we need to remember how long it took us to understand and do certain things in our own life. Most of us are not instantaneous changers, are we? It takes us a little while in order to move from one spot to another. Some of us are slower than others. But we need to remember ourselves. Because it may not have been that we were that easy as well. And then the patience of others that they had with you when you were in the same condition. And the tribute, you might say, that you could pay to them for what they spent on you in bringing you to Christ, to bringing you to the truth, in teaching you the way of salvation. And so we need to remember those things. Perseverance prompts one after teaching one person to keep on going, whether he succeeds or fails, to seek out another person, then another, and then another, and then another. And patience is what regulates our relationship with each and every one of them. As we begin to close tonight, a person can have the greatest motivation in the world to bring others to Christ. But if they walk down that proverbial dirty, nasty hallway and they see that within our own life, how long will what we teach them last in their house? Referring back to what we said at the beginning of our lesson 
in regard to the cake. If our house looks like that, our personal house, if our spiritual life looks like that, how long would what we say to those people we want to bring to Christ, how long would what we say last in their ears? I'm going to suggest to you it's like that cake. It's leaving pretty fast. Leaving pretty fast. And so all four of these things that we've mentioned tonight are, are very, very important, to say the least. And the question is, do we, do you as an individual, do you possess the characteristics of a Bible evangelist? At least these four things that I've mentioned tonight. Now, before you jump with glee and say, mm, I'm not sure my life, I, I'm not sure I possess the characteristics of a, uh, of a, of an, a Bible evangelist like that. And so, you know what, I'm just not cut out for being an evangelist, and so it's not for me. And so, so I'll just not worry about what you have to say for the rest of the year, and, and we'll just move on. Before you let out that sigh of relief and say it's not for me, understand this. These are characteristics of every Christian. Characteristics that every Christian must have in his or her life. Whether you ever teach another person or not the way of salvation, if your life is not characterized by these, there must be a change. Period. Evangelism is not something for someone, some strange person, far off somewhere in a land that's a third world land, third world country, and you're teaching somebody sitting out under a shade tree. Oh, that works as well. But evangelism is for every one of us. And the characteristics of an evangelist should characterize every single Christian in this auditorium tonight. Those who are here this morning, those who will be here Wednesday night, anyone who claims to be a follower, disciple, child of God, those are our characteristics. Somebody might ask, why is the church not converting more people? Well, there are several answers that could be put forth tonight. And I'm not blaming everything why we're not on, on this one lesson. Not, not saying that it's totally and completely that case, because it's not. But if our congregation and our individual life is not made up of folks like this, changes must be made. Changes in our own life. Changes in our thinking. Changes in the way that we respond to the world around us. So that we can be a light. So that we can be the salt that God wants us to be. And shining the light and giving the flavor on God and of God. Maybe tonight that you need to respond to the Lord's invitation for whatever it may be to become a Christian or to come back to Him. 
If you need to do that, why don't you do it right